You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers. This is an LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller, and I'm a medical oncologist and also a volunteer with the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. I want to welcome you back for this second part of a discussion with Dr. Paul Richardson talking about multiple myeloma. In hearing you talk and reading some of your work, my summary would be you talk about three phases of treatment, induction, transplant, and then maintenance. So I'd like to get a little bit into those three. When you first see a patient for induction, there seems like there are so many choices, doublets, triplets, taking a triplet and adding a fourth drug. What are you thinking about as you sit with a patient newly diagnosed? How do you make those decisions? And and in fact, what do you consider the state of the art now for induction? That's a great question, uh, Ken. I think I personally would qualify what you just said and just say I think of induction remission therapy, consolidation, and maintenance. Okay. And I think transplant is evolving. And I think that in my own practice, uh, I think at this particular ASH meeting, we saw some very important data that suggests to me at least that one size truly does not fit all with transplant. And I think the old paradigm of transplant eligible versus transplant ineligible will increasingly become less meaningful because essentially you're going to have younger and older patients, you're going to have induction, remission, consolidation, and maintenance strategies. And quite what forms part of the therapeutic sandwich is going to become increasingly tailored to each individual patient. So in my practice, I think that the level of evidence for three drug induction regimens is extremely high. So we typically deploy a triplet, and we often will deploy an antibody as well, particularly in a protocol-directed setting. And so three, four-drug combinations are a standard approach in the upfront setting. And of course, I don't mean to omit also the anti-resorptive agents, because if you like, that's your fifth wheel, which is you know, the either bisphosphonate or denosumab, depending on the clinical context. So I think that as you think about, therefore, four and five drug regimens, ultimately, induction remission strategies seek to achieve maximal response. In my practice, a proteasome inhibitor and an imid are central to that approach. And then once maximal response is achieved, maintenance can follow. And maintenance typically in our practice consists of an immunomodulatory backbone. And particularly if a patient hasn't had a transplant, we will deploy proteasome inhibition. And even in a patient who has had a transplant, if they're at high risk of relapse, we will also utilize proteasome inhibition. And increasingly now in the protocol-directed setting, we're exploring the emerging role of antibodies as part of maintenance as well. Now, I was really interested in some of the data I've seen you present on the issue of the, and I think you called it real-world, results versus uh, clinical, clinical trials or academics. And I think most patients in the United States and elsewhere are treated in a community setting. But what are some of the issues that you've seen in terms of there's so many drugs now and there's so many dosings and a way to dose them and modifications. What are the issues in the real world compared to academics and what are some of the lessons we can learn in a community setting? Well, I think, Ken, that's a, a super question. The real world now is taking on many different dimensions. The most important is well-tolerated and practical. I think the other real world is affordable because at the end of the day, four and five drug combinations that are you know, generating price tags that exceed 
you know, millions of dollars become very challenging. And I think what we do as a research community is try our very best to generate what I consider value to our approaches. And so I think that, you know, triplets obviously confer survival benefits. So they're worth every penny, as it were, or they should be considered extremely valuable. But at the same time, the antibodies have been game-changing, as you and I saw at ASH, in terms of clinical outcome. So I think that as we put these drugs together, I try to think of what you and I can get our hands around in the clinic without having to run against you know, three or four appeals and wait weeks to mobilize an agent. And so we've seen various patterns and strategies built on that. And one of the most rewarding or satisfying ones to see, to, in my experience recently, has been the success of the optimism trial in which we combined bortezomib, pomalidomide, and dexamethasone exclusively in the setting of lenalidomide-exposed and refractory patients. And we were very pleased to see how well the combination uh, performed because obviously, you know, many folks would have said, well, why on earth didn't you simply dive straight into pomalidomide and carfilzomib as a combination because that combination is so powerful and it most certainly is and it's a super platform. But, you know, particularly outside of the U.S., it's very difficult for clinicians to access, you know, promising as carfilzomib is. And I think that, therefore, the success we saw with pomalidomide, bortezomib and dexamethasone combined in lenalidomide refractory patients, particularly in first relapse, with you know PFS's medians that were approaching 18 months, uh, even in len refractory patients, was really encouraging to see because then you can rationally add to it. So, for example, with PVD as a value proposition, you can then add on top of that an antibody that isn't you know as a four drug combination going to to result in tremendous uh, challenges logistically and resource wise. So, I think that's a very important part of the real world equation. The other piece in the real-world equation is this tolerability question. You know, how reproducible are results in day-to-day practice compared to what we see in highly controlled clinical trials? And we've made some interesting observations there. Certain drugs have performed very consistently. For example, pomalidomide-based combinations. What we see in the real world is very similar to what we see in highly controlled clinical trials. The same is found with bortezomib-based approaches and the antibodies, uh, especially daratumumab. Interestingly, panabinostat proved much more challenging in that regard, and not perhaps surprisingly, because it's a very powerful combination with both proteasome inhibition and immunomodulation, but it does require considerable skill in terms of managing side effects. Interestingly, the same can be said of carfilzomib, where in real-world settings, the use of the drug doesn't translate in quite the same way as it's seen in highly controlled clinical trials, doesn't in any way diminish the value of carfilzomib, it's a superb proteasome inhibitor, but you know, in real-world practice, it's not always so easy to use, particularly in the older patients who are at risk of vascular toxicity and and cardiac side effects. So I have to, it reminds me of Vince DeVita in 1969. I mean, the, all of a sudden, MOP was developed as a regimen. You know, the, the cure rates went up dramatically, but not everyone was cured. And some of it had to do with things that community physicians were, were doing or not doing. For example, that giving patients the right dose at the right time was important. Any lessons, sort of just lessons for community practitioners about, for example, panabinostat or carfilzomib, just, you know, sort of general guidelines to improve for us to do the best job we can do in the community? Well, it's a great question, Ken, and there are an enormous number of aspects to this because a lot of these drug-based, these drug therapies or these combination-based regimens can be highly nuanced in terms of uh, the way you use them. First of all, you know, careful attention to side effect management is critical because continuous therapy really matters. 
And, you know, as we've seen the success of antibodies such as daratumumab, which has been quite stunning in the way it's moved from relapsed refractory so quickly to the upfront space, it's important to remember elotuzumab, which is acting through an entirely different pathway, very well tolerated antibody in my experience, and most recently the success seen when combined with pomalidomide in the Eloquent 3 study that led to its FDA approval. So it, it kind of am- amplifies the point you make that the convenience and ease of a well-tolerated drug, be it an antibody, an inhibitor or otherwise, always adds to its value. I think the sort of vignettes revolve around optimal management, for example, with bortezomib of neurotoxicity, and there's a lot to that, partnering the steroids appropriately, progressive action in terms of uh, emollients to the hands and feet, use of supplements on non-bortezomib days, use of intravenous hydration in my experience, regardless of the subcut route to improve fatigue and neurotoxicity acutely. Then when you move into the space of carfilzomib, careful attention to blood pressure control, caution regarding renal function, make sure you know cardiac function is adequate, and careful monitoring. But it's been shown by a number of investigators, if you do that, and if you're careful with handling carfilzomib in that regard, it's a highly effective and, and arguably the most potent proteasome inhibitor we have, and particularly useful, for example, after daratumumab fails, which of course is a particularly challenging space in the relapsed refractory world. I, I would say that there are other proteasome inhibitors that we should mention because they can be very well tolerated, particularly in older patients, and exazomib is one of them, and in fact is the only FDA-approved oral proteasome inhibitor. And what we found in our real-world work was that exazomib performed extremely well in clinical trials and also in real-world experiences. So exazomib for older patients is particularly attractive, I think, and it's also very now now established as a, as a potential new option in maintenance because of the benefits seen in the uh, MMO3 trial where, compared to placebo, exazomib showed clinical benefit with an approximately five- to six-month progression-free survival gain recognizing obviously, Ken, that that doesn't in any way supersede the striking clinical benefit of lenalidomide, but it it does give us an important option that we can add. To your point, allows us to continuously dose patients without necessarily the inconvenience of intravenous administration or required visits to the office. I have two truth or myth questions for you. Okay, based on just your experience, also on the latest ASHA data. Truth or myth, early transplant is better than late? It's an excellent question, and I think the data are evolving. Outside of the U.S., where therapeutic options are clearly less easily available and salvage strategies may be more limited, I think for younger patients who are transplant eligible, the data consistently show that the clinical benefit from transplant early is valuable. I think in the U.S., we are fortunate that we have excellent salvage options, and at the same time, that allows us to be judicious and and tailored in our approach to younger patients where we can offer transplant as an option but for patients who prefer to keep it in reserve so do as long as of course we optimize induction remission treatment with our currently available novel agents and at the same time ensure continuous therapy as part of maintenance with an appropriately graduated combination approach and what I mean by that is if you don't transplant a patient early, it's important that you don't drop your proteasome inhibitor in my experience because essentially you're relying just on the immune modulator alone to do the work. And that can be sometimes more problematic if you do not have the benefit of a transplant in the mix early. I think the important message though, and this is something that's really, I think, potentially game-changing, is that in the randomized trials in the novel agent era, we are not seeing survival benefit 
to early transplant. Now that's very important because if you're seeing progression-free survival benefit but not overall survival benefit, it begs the question, what's going on? Now people might argue, well that's just successful transplant salvage, is it not? Well yes and no, because if you think about it, and it just takes me back to my days as a cancer pharmacologist before becoming highly focused in myeloma, we offered high-dose therapy to patients with breast cancer. And in that situation, we improved time to progression, we improved progression-free survival, but we did not make a blind bit of difference to overall survival. And if you think about that paradigm, that's a cause for caution, I think, because it tells you that for the 10 patients you are helping with the transplant, you may be actually not helping the next 10, because that would explain why the survival curves close. And if that's the case, we need to step back and think very carefully. I personally think that the data for autologous stem cell transplantation in myeloma are very well established, and it is clearly a standard of care in transplant-eligible patients. But the field's evolving, and what we're realizing is patients live 5, 10, 15 years now, and even longer. Long-term consequences of genotoxic chemotherapy have to be borne in mind, and that's not just a function of secondary MDS and AML, which fortunately is still very limited in number. We also have to remember that for those residual myeloma cells that survive the onslaught of high-dose melphalan, are we left with a genetically more dangerous or more challenging genotype and phenotype in the long term? And I guess we don't really know that, but it is one way of thinking about this that's new, and it's a very important new area of research in my view, because there may be 10 patients we really serve well with transplant, but there may be another 10 patients in whom we don't. And the good news is that we have other tools to help them, so one size truly does not fit all. Along those lines, so if you are meeting with a patient and you've gone through the first phase of treatment, induction and remission, it's really more of a discussion of the pros and cons. How do you handle that sort of it's joint decision-making? What role do you play? What role does the patient play? It's very important to be tailored to the patient's needs, but we also have obviously have to guide patients based on best available data. And for example, at this year's ASH meeting, there was a remarkable presentation by the Italian group showing that the combination of carfilzomib, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone for 12 cycles achieved just the same depth and quality of response as well as MRD negative rate, as did eight cycles of carfilzomib, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone and a transplant. Very interestingly, in the same study, the third arm were assigned to carfilzomib, cyclophosphamide, and dexamethasone plus transplant, and I think quite importantly, that arm performed the least well. So that tells us that chemo on chemo isn't necessarily the way to go with this disease, and biological therapy you know, points in the opposite direction. And I think these data, depending on how we see the PFS information pan out and OS information, obviously, in the long term, are very provocative. So I think that these, these are important pieces of information to share with patients. And then, in my experience, patients make very thoughtful judgments based on their own scenario. Personally, in my practice, I offer induction remission treatment, ideally protocol participation. If a protocol is not readily available or not preferred by a patient, we'll do induction remission treatment to best response, consider collecting stem cells if they're transplant eligible, or not, because there are some patients who are comfortable actually keeping that whole step in reserve, and I think the safety of mobilization has become 
you know, much clearer now, particularly with the newer drugs like Perixifor available to us if we need to, to mobilize patients. But all that being said, typically storing of stem cells is still traditionally recommended, although again, the insurances are beginning to balk at this. And this is not a, not a trivial point because they argue if you do collect, you should go straight to transplant. I understand why the insurances are saying that, Ken. I, I think at the same time, it does box the patient into a decision tree that may or may not be totally justified. If a patient, however, has a fantastic response, is tolerating treatment well, we know from our own randomized trials that, for example, in the IFM DFCI determination study work, and in particular our French partners in, in the French trial, they showed that if you achieved high-quality response as reflected by MRD negativity, regardless of the way you achieved it, you did just as well. So for those patients who achieved MRD negativity without transplant, their outcomes were the same as those who uh, actually had a transplant into the bargain. So for that reason, I'm offering patients really the choice, and we kind of see how things go. And if patients do well, and they tolerate novel therapies well, we can afford to sort of sit tight and see how, in the longer term, um, their disease performs. And conversely, for patients in whom disease biology proves more challenging, and it's clear that some form of intensification and cytotoxic reductive approaches make sense, transplant can then follow. All right, so related question, truth or myth, tandem transplant is better than single autotransplant? Well, I think, again, this depends on where you are in the world. I think tandem transplantation makes sense in countries where salvage options may be very limited and where the ability to deploy drugs that target resistance, you know, are also not necessarily readily available. But, I mean, right now we have various conflicting lines of evidence. On the one hand, we have trials from Europe and in particular from our German colleagues that show benefit to tandem, which is very impressive and and, and don't in any way mean to, to diminish the value of those. Conversely, in the U.S. setting, we don't have evidence that tandem actually makes a major difference based upon beautiful work from the stamina study group led by the CTN. And what we do see there is that lenalidomide maintenance until progression is truly the equalizer. And so my argument there would be if you've got the ability to maintain patients continuously, and if you can use a variety of agents to so do, probably tandem transplantation is something to approach with a certain amount more caution because for all the important reasons, when we look at the stamina study, for those patients assigned to the tandem transplant arm, fully a third were unable to proceed for a variety of reasons. And that tells us that the modality in itself has limitations. So I I think to say that tandem is better than single, blanketly, is a myth. Having said that it may have value in certain patients in certain circumstances is legitimate and true. All right, I'd like to move on to maintenance. What would you say, again, 2019 would be the standard of care for maintenance after induction and consolidation? Well, Ken, I think there the data are very strong. Clearly, lenalidomide has emerged as the backbone of maintenance therapy, and it should be given until progression, regardless of quality of response. And I think if it's obviously not tolerated, that's a different matter. But if it's tolerated and patients you know, can manage the simplicity of a three-week-on, one-week-on uh, regimen of a daily medicine, you know, it's a, it provides a really, uh, in my view, a, a, a paradigm-changing approach. And clearly, maintenance has now change the therapeutic landscape of myeloma globally. We have data from our our own work in the U.S. led by my colleague Phil McCarthy from the Alliance CLGB100 study that 
you know, have led to the FDA approval of lenalidomide maintenance. There's beautiful work from Europe that resonates with the same, not least of which uh, work led by Graham Jackson and colleagues in the United Kingdom, showing that essentially lenalidomide maintenance is, you know, absolutely fundamental to successful outcome as part of continuous therapy. And this, I think, is now accepted broadly now as a standard of care. The interesting question, of course, Ken, is how do you add to it successfully? And there, I think, we've got opportunities like exazomib, got opportunities like the antibodies, be it daratumumab or elotuzumab for that matter. And obviously, in the absence of being able to access those, the use of bortezomib every couple of weeks is very reasonable. And now, of course, there is the use of carfilzomib maintenance as well, especially given um, the safety and efficacy seen of once weekly uh, infusions of carfilzomib pursuant to the ARROW study. So again, to me, it sounds like, again, benefit of an oral approach. And and echoing sort of the theme I think you started with, these are, it sounds like a fairly safe approach in terms of, but the need for continuous therapy. Is that fair to say? Yes, it is. I think the important point is that you mentioned a key question, safety. So lenalidomide maintenance is, you know, accepting it as a standard of care, I think has been a key sort of junction point in myeloma treatment globally, because then you have to say, well, what? best dances with it. And what we're seeing again in the transplant space is that after high-dose melphalan, there is this risk of second cancer that may be greater when you combine len with mel. It's less when it's len alone, significantly less in our experience. So that being the case, I think that it's important to say, well, what's driving the benefit? And certainly in the older patients, it's clear that LEN continuous therapy is the way to go after lenalidomide and dexamethasone. And clearly, melphalan as an oral agent that's given continuously at low dose, you know, has, has now been is now seen as obsolete. In the transplant setting, I think we're moving into an era where we'll learn a lot more from U.S. studies, not least. You know, how successful is lenalidomide maintenance post-transplant versus not? Are there differences that matter? In my own clinical experience, I think that post-transplant maintenance with len has been highly successful. I think in the non-transplanted patients, len maintenance can equally be effective. It is perhaps a little bit easier to give, less infections, less dose interruptions, less myelosuppression. Certainly what's true over the long term is there may be significantly less risk of second cancer, be it most importantly MDS or AML, although that data remain still immature, so I think we have to be careful about that. But I think your point about safety is key. And when we use lenalidomide, dose adjustment to best tolerance is key. Understanding that patients can have non-hematologic toxicities, such as one particularly troublesome side effect that is the bile acid malabsorption diarrhea. The good news is that you can obviate that very nicely the use of uh, cholestopol or cholestyramine to bind bile acid and so get rid of that very troublesome side effect when it occurs and a variety of other strategies that are obviously relevant but um, I think you know lenalidomide maintenance is, is is a critical sort of backbone now to the continuous therapy paradigm. I want to ask you some about relapse and refractory but Bring up the issue of toxicities. Let's say a couple words about the multidisciplinary team in caring for patients with myeloma, especially oncology nurses. What's the role of the team in managing these patients? I'm so glad you asked that question because I think it's an absolutely fundamental one in good real-world practice. Continuous therapy requires a team effort. You know, patients have to be able to tolerate drugs. They have to be able to recognize um, a side effect profile that we can then abrogate with various strategies. And at the same time, dose reduction, schedule change, and all of these approaches are essential. I find the management of peripheral neuropathy a particularly challenging area, but one that if you address it very comprehensively can be very effectively managed. 
increasingly in the cardio-oncological space, expert cardiologists can provide really good insights as to how to minimize any risks associated with cardiotoxic drugs such as carfilzomib, and at the same time make the ability to deliver arguably the best, almost potent proteasome inhibitor effectively, you know, possible, whereas it might not otherwise be. And I think in that same context, careful attention with nursing care to uh, GI side effects and so on allows you to really optimize the delivery of exazomib uh, and other strategies like it. Deep vein thrombosis, we often involve our coagulation experts from our benign hematology group to guide us with the oral uh, direct anticoagulants, the DOACs. And obviously, that's a huge benefit to patients because it's so convenient and so straightforward. And I do want to mention it, well, two really, is the value of our radiation therapy colleagues. Uh, I'm blessed to work with an outstanding radiation oncology group. And my particular radiation oncology leader at the Brigham, Dr. Andrea Ning, is so responsive and so thoughtful. And I have other colleagues in the community uh, who are equally good. Um, that's a very important part of, of myeloma management that's so sometimes underappreciated. The other thing is to recognize that you don't necessarily need to interrupt treatments in order to, to treat, for example, extramedullary disease. In other words, you can continue proteasome inhibition, continue antibody. Maybe you need to hold your image during radiation, but most of the time you can spot weld, for want of a better term, if that doesn't sound too crude, and at the same time continue systemic therapy. And that's very important with extramedullary disease, which can be so challenging and symptomatically very problematic as well. I think the other piece of the multidisciplinary team is actually the orthopedic team. A good, well-versed and well-informed orthopedic surgeon can be absolutely invaluable for bony complications. And in that same spirit, we're blessed with a very good oral medicine group who help us with the management of dental hygiene and uh, the increasingly manageable aspects of osteonecrosis of the jaw, which really occur, but are, are nonetheless very manageable. And I guess the final part of the multidisciplinary team that I would emphasize are our renal colleagues. The management of uh, renal complications in myeloma is very important to appreciate because that can meaningfully impact on overall survival in ways that are perhaps underappreciated initially, but clearly serious renal dysfunction compromises long-term survival. You've given such a great description of the multidisciplinary team, but there are any other aspects of it as well. Well, I think that's a great question I'm going to spend a little bit more time on because I think it really does matter. On the subspecialty side, of, in terms of the medical side of things, obviously one thing uh, providers must not forget is the commonest cause of death in myeloma patients is infection. And so having a proactive and engaged infectious disease team working with you can be very helpful, recognizing that it's very important to be proactive with antibiotics, antivirals, and in particular antifungals. In, in minimizing infectious complications in our patients. A lot of this obviously coming from steroid use, which can be particularly problematic in the longer term. In the same spirit of talking about steroid use, we obviously have really good resources, fortunately, with our medical social work and psychiatric colleagues because chronic steroid use can lead to all sorts of issues emotionally. And many of our very effective drugs can also lead to reactive depression. And whilst these are challenges, they're very manageable if properly recognized and addressed. And in that same spirit, patient advocacy and information is absolutely essential. And I especially want to acknowledge all the patient advocacy groups who are involved in myeloma, ranging obviously from MMRF to IMF, but in particular and relevant to today's discussion, I especially want to acknowledge the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society for their support of patients and families with our disease. 
So I want to ask you about, which is, you know, essentially the topic of how to take care of patients with relapse or refractory disease. And, you know, I wrote down here, just in reviewing some of your articles and some of the other articles from Dana-Farber and elsewhere, exazimib, daratumumab, elotuzumab, Lendex, HDAC inhibitors. I'd love your maybe a 60,000-foot view of how to look at the options for patients that have relapsed, how you do it, and how you make some of those decisions, and, and what you think is exciting now. That's a great question, Ken, and I think in the relapsed refractory space, we always used to be taught, well, all of your your money, as it were, lies in induction remission maintenance and treat as best you can to prevent first relapse, and then after that, it's a law of diminishing returns. I think, frankly, that field is changing, and I think that's very, very good news for our patients because, unfortunately, still in myeloma, relapse is inevitable. Having said that, strategies to salvage patients in relapse have become so much better. We have the whole emerging space of immunotherapeutics, ranging from obviously CAR-T through to uh, bispecific T-cell engagers, antibody drug conjugates, rational combinations, off-the-shelf antibodies that are, are now really have made such a difference, ranging from the CD38 approach to obviously targeting of BCMA and beyond. I think that the other piece that's so exciting is the availability of new next-generation inhibitors. For example, in the immunomodulatory space, we now have the cell mods 220 and 480 that are currently in Phase 1 and Phase 2 development, both showing great promise and excellent tolerability. And I think, although data range very limited because public presentations of studies have have yet to be done, but certainly in uh, investigator-based discussions, the early results are looking very encouraging. In that same spirit, we obviously have the new drug we've talked about, selective inhibitors of nuclear export protein being one, but another wonderful actually new target, which I'm my privilege to be part of the development of, is actually the use of targeted cytotoxics, which are specifically aminopeptidase avid, and so really targeted by being able to be preferentially taken up by myeloma cells not released into the circulation outside of the tumor platform itself and so confer a remarkable cytotoxic effect in a highly targeted fashion. So this melflufen concept is really going forward. We're in, currently in now in phase three trials. So there are a lot of exciting options, and those are just a couple of examples of what the relapsed refractory space is looking like. I think in the same context of the relapsed refractory space, it's very important to emphasize how important the use of venetoclax has been in the relapsed refractory space as one particular approach. The other exciting molecules at ASH were numerous, I thought, but perhaps some of the more promising in terms of them being ready for sort of prime time included the antibody drug conjugate 916, which is very interesting and now in pivotal studies for accelerated FDA approval. So again, the relapsed refractory space previously very challenging now with three, four drug platforms that are real world and generally well tolerated, showing real benefit to patients in terms of long-term disease control and obviously pomalidomide for example has become a backbone in that space. Having said that I do think that it's important for clinicians to realize that relapsed refractory disease is exquisitely challenging and that the genetic complexity of it is very real. So a very important practice point Ken is always to make sure patients get fully reassessed when they are relapsed and refractory because obviously things change so quickly within them both genetically and clinically. Final comment would be in the relapsed refractory space to be aware of the importance of making sure that certain aspects of supportive care are optimized, um, not just bisphosphonate or anti-resorptive therapy for bone, but things like recurrent infections are managed with IVIG and so on. 
because all of these things can lead to interruptions in treatment and in the relapse refractory space it becomes so important to not allow that to happen because unfortunately the disease is just very much more unforgiving in my experience in that setting. You know, by the way, I just want to share with the listening audience, I'm sitting here nodding my head and, and also with a big smile, how exciting it is because you're listening now to the exploding list of possibilities. And Paul, honestly, your excitement about it. And uh, so it's, it's pretty amazing. Well, it's my pleasure, Ken. And I think that's a very nice note to sort of, you know, uh, wrap things around because I think there's tremendous hope and appropriate optimism. But at the same time, um, the reality of the challenge that the disease isn't curable yet. But my sincere hope is that with these various strategies under evolution, not least of which is the immune therapies, I think we're going to be poised to make for an increasing proportion of our patients myeloma a truly chronic disease and arguably what my colleagues call, and I, I agree with them, particularly Keith Stewart's analysis, where patients enjoy a functional cure. And I think it's also worth mentioning, Ken, you and I have touched on a number of drug classes, and, and I think that these are critical, obviously, as established either approved agents or agents that are coming close to FDA approval. But I think very importantly, there are a number of other small molecule targeted approaches in development, and we haven't been able to cover all of them, but just suffice to say, there are many currently in process or under evaluation across the country and internationally that I think are very exciting. And in that same spirit, strategies aimed at really further augmenting immune treatments in this disease are also a very dynamic space. So I want to firstly say what an incredible uh, experience it's been for me. And, and Paul, I have to say your enthusiasm and your excitement and just your dedication has been inspiring to me for many years. So with all that in mind, I really want to thank you for myself and also the Leukemia Lymphoma Society for, for joining us today. Ken, it's truly my pleasure. And thank you for such fabulous questions. For additional Leukemia and Lymphoma Society resources and continuing education activities, please visit www.lls.org CE. And for questions or to refer a patient, please contact the LLS Information Resource Center at 800-955-4572. Information specialists are available to provide personalized support to help you and your patients learn about their disease, treatment, financial, and other support resources, as well as to connect them with our clinical trial support center nurses for personalized assistance in finding an appropriate trial and throughout the entire clinical trial process. They're there to provide also an additional resource to the healthcare team. So again, please visit www.lls.org CE or call 800-955-4572. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.